Would you pray with me? Father, we, we come before you powerless to bring the change that we so desperately desire to see in our own hearts and in the world. We come before you with nothing to offer but to lay down our lives and our wills and to beg you to do what only you can do in our minds and our hearts and our lives. God, I pray that this morning we would turn our eyes to you, that we would find all of our desires to be fulfilled in you. God, help us to do what we can't do in our own strength. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are at a place now in, in the story where um, there's, it's kind of a culmination of what has come before, that, that God created this world, it was broken through sin, through our own sin, and that derailed um, supposedly derailed uh, the whole idea, but as we've talked about, God had been planning this from the beginning. And then he leads his people in and out of different situations, with leading them to a promised land, saying, as he promised to Abraham, I have a land for you, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. And we get through Moses leading God's people out of slavery and delivering them from Egypt. And then they wander in the desert. And we come now to Joshua. And we come now to the point where God's people will finally enter into the promised land. So we're going to be in the book of Joshua. And then we are going to um, fast forward to the book of John. So we're going to be in early parts of Joshua. And then if you want to put... Um, you know, a finger or a marker in uh, John 14, um, but we're going to be bouncing around John quite a bit also. Because as you remember, the whole point of this series is not to cover in detail every story from the Old Testament, but rather to demonstrate and show how all of the scripture that we have points to Jesus. And how it all is about what God has been doing from the beginning of time, what his plan has been from the beginning of time, and the, the playing out of that plan as it leads to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we come to this place as the Israelites have wandered, and now they are on the brink of the promised land. And Joshua 1, verse 1 says, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land and I am, uh, that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses." So I'll pause there. What, what I want to do here in this message is we want to walk through kind of briefly um, what happens as the people of Israel um, go into the promised land. How do they actually cross into the promised land? And we want to then point to how does that point to Jesus and then what does that mean for us today? And so what we have here is is. The Lord continuing, he tells Moses, if you remember when they're wandering the desert, he tells Moses, you are not going to see the promised land. You, we, we will, I will deliver the promised land. I will deliver, deliver my people to the promised land, but you aren't going to see it. And so after Moses dies, the Lord commissions Joshua. And he says, just as I have promised and we see with this anticipation, and can you imagine being Joshua in this situation of following Moses, the servant of the Lord? They've never known a greater servant of the Lord than Moses, and now he has to follow him. 
But God is saying the promise that I made to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Joseph, and to Moses is now going to come to pass through you. And you can only imagine the trepidation and the concern of Joshua. I mean, just imagine what would have gone through his mind. Lord, they're not going to listen to me like they listened to Moses. I'm, I'm not who Moses was. I can't be who Moses was. Maybe he's wondering, why didn't you just, wouldn't it have made so much more sense, God, to just let Moses lead them into the promised land and then I could take over when everything was settled? And you could almost hear those things coming out of Joshua's mind and his heart, and you can almost hear it as God continues to speak in verse 5. He says, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be, very, be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. And again, later, as he goes down in verse 9, he says, Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. We can't miss this at the beginning of this message, how God responds to the fears of his servants. Like right off the bat, we see him saying, this is what I'm going to do through you. And you can feel Joshua's concern and his, and, his, and his trepidation towards it. And God's response is, be strong and courageous. And what does he say to him? Does he say, be strong and courageous, Joshua, because you are faithful, because you are strong, because you are mighty? No. He says, be strong and courageous, Joshua, because I am with you wherever you go. And as Joshua is thinking, but Moses was great, God is saying, Moses was a great servant because I was with him. You will be victorious because I am with you. And we're going to touch on that a little bit later, but let's Keep that in mind as Joshua leads the people, God's encouragement to him is, I am with you. And that is the greatest encouragement that he can give. If you skip on later, they, they end up crossing um, over the Jordan and Joshua goes in and the, and the Ark of the Covenant goes into the river and it spreads um, the water. And so the nation is able to pass over the Jordan River and as they kind of make their approach to Jericho, the, the mighty city that's, that's there on the edge of the promised land, as they kind of they make their way to there, we see this very interesting interaction where Joshua meets a warrior in, in chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 13 says, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. This little scene, as Joshua is leading the people, so he's been commissioned by God. God says, Be strong and courageous, for I am with you. And then as he approaches Jericho, he runs into this very terrifying warrior 
And he asks the question, are you for us or for our adversaries? And what's the response? The response is so strange. The response is no. That wasn't one of the options. Like I'm, Joshua's like thinking, wait a second, I don't think you heard my question. I'm saying, are you for them or are you for me? And the response is no. Now see the, the train of, of thinking that's going on here for Joshua that he's been commissioned by God. God has said, your strength is that I am with you. And then he comes to this warrior of light and Joshua is saying, wait, whose side are you on? And he says, I'm, no, I am the commander of the Lord's army. Listen, just as an aside here, don't, don't try to get God on your side. We should be far more consumed with being on his side than we are about getting him on our side. This happens all the time, by the way, in all the things that we pursue, pursue when we're asking questions of, hey, is it okay if I do this thing or if I do that thing? Or I want to pursue this. I, I want to try to make sure that this is okay with God. And all that is, is us being consumed with our ways, our plans, our desires, and saying to God, hey, if I make this look good, if I make this, you know, I want, I, I want to do this, but I want to do it in your way. So can I, let's get you on my side here. And when we go to God and we say, God, are you, are you for me or against me here in pursuing my desires? God is going to give you a resounding no. Because he is the Lord. And Joshua comes onto his side. A great um, a, a theologian, Bible scholar said that we are more interested in guidance rather than a right relationship with the guide. I found that, find that to be so true. That we are so much more interested in guidance and getting the right guidance than we are in a right relationship with the guide. I mean, what are you pursuing right now? When you go to God, are you pursuing just guidance or are you pursuing Him? And Joshua is firmly now entrenched with Him. In chapter 6, finally get to Jericho. And we have this famous story starting in verse 1. It says, Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. And then later, so they, they do this, they march around the city, and then in verse 20, after they've marched on the seventh day, they've marched seven times around the city, and in verse 20 we see, So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. So the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys, with the edge of the sword." Now listen, there's a whole other conversation that could happen about God sending his people into battle. And I would just refer you back to a very similar conversation that we had during the message on Noah. And I'll just, I'll just summarize it with this. That if your posture, if your starting point is that human beings are essentially good, and that we're basically just good people doing the best that we can, 
And that God in the Bible is this God who is just a perfectionist. He's an overbearing, perfectionist father who just is waiting for you to mess up. And even though you are a good person and you're doing the best that you possibly can, he just is waiting, waiting, waiting. And the second you mess up, bam, judgment. If that's your view, then nothing in the Old Testament that we have gone through will make sense. You will read Noah and you will see God as harsh for judging the world. You will read these passages and you will see God as irrational and a tyrant. But if your view is what the Bible says the view is, which is that human beings at their core are dark and deceitful, that sin has infected every part, though created in the image of God, and created with value because of that, sin has entered every portion of our being. And we are bent on destruction as we pursue our own selfish desires and rebellion against a good and holy and just king. If that is your starting point, then you see God as just. And you end up looking at it and saying, how did he wait this long? How patient this God is that he would suffer with rebels who are bent on destruction for hundreds of years and then pronounce judgment. The thing that is probably more sticks out in the midst of this section is this very strange battle strategy. And I don't know about you, but when I first read this, I remember as a kid thinking, man, people fought really weird in the Old Testament. Like that's, I couldn't imagine anything like that happening. And so I just assumed that that's just the way people fought back in those days. But here's the thing. It is just as weird to, to the people back in the, the people in Jericho found that just as weird as we find it today. They couldn't fathom this idea of why would you march around a city? And so you have this very countercultural battle strategy. And what's the point of that? Well, the point of it is simply that God is with them. That, they, that this battle is going to be won by God. It's about God being with you, not the best strategy. And so as we see this theme through the Old Testament and into the New Testament, that God is constantly stacking the deck against his people so that he will be demonstrated as the one who is deserving of glory. Now, sometimes I think we get a little confused, though, here. So we see them marching around the city, and then the city walls fall down. And sometimes we get the idea that then they just waltz in. They waltz in like the city walls come crumbling down and crush everybody in Jericho. But that's not what happens. What happens is the city wall comes crumbling down so that the armies of the Lord can go in. And they do fight. But the stress here is that it is about God, not our strategies and our plans. That it is about our obedience to him. And it's about setting God up to get all of the glory. And so we have to understand this as we see God's people. They often are fighting in countercultural ways, in ways that make them look foolish. And so they go in, and they take Jericho and the beginning of their um, possession of the promised land happens. And in Joshua 21, we skip all the way up to Joshua 21, verse 43, God summarizes the whole book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 21, verse 43, it says, Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. 
Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. I don't think I can say this any more clearly than this. God fulfills all his promises. Every single one. Most often when we feel like God has failed to keep a promise to us, it's because we don't understand the promises he's made. We've attributed things to him that he has never promised, but everything God promises, he has fulfilled and will fulfill. And this is an old promise. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years old. And God fulfills it. And they are given a promise then to remain in him. And Joshua appeals to them to remain in God, obey him. And the people of Israel say, yes, we will. Now we see he has fulfilled all of his promises. He is so good. How could we have ever doubted him? Look at how far he has brought us. He has walked us out of slavery and across the Red Sea and across the Jordan and into Jericho and into the promised land. Yes, our God fulfills all of his promises. Yes, we will follow him forever. And the people of God lived happily ever after. The end. Wait, that's not what mine says. Because I still got this much left. Right? Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of God being faithful and delivering his people. And every turn they're looking back and saying, wasn't it better back there? And couldn't we have done it this way? And why are we doing it this way? And now finally he fulfills everything and they walk into the promised land and they can barely last a generation. And if that does not ring true in your heart or sound a little, hit a little too close to home, then my guess is you aren't really awake right now. How many times has God proven himself faithful and how quickly do we turn from him and doubt him? How quickly do we pursue other things? At the end of this book, we have a question left unanswered, a problem. Now you must choose to serve the Lord, serve the Lord, be with the Lord, but you will fail. And they won't obey him, and they will be kicked out of the land. And we see this pattern over and over and over again, even to this day. We need help, we need a greater Joshua. Greater Yeshua, which of all the parallels, this is one of the most beautiful ones, that Joshua is the Hebrew version of Jesus. So all this is clearly pointing to something greater. It's pointing, this story of Joshua leading the people into the promised land is pointing to a greater Joshua who is Jesus who will lead us into a better land, one that will never be taken from us. If you want, turn to John 14. I also have it up here on the screen. Jesus, as he's kind of approaching the end of his ministry, says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. 
So now we have multiple, multiple generations later, and Jesus is talking to his disciples, and they are wondering as they have come to believe that he is a Messiah, and they're saying, are you now the greater, this Jesus, are you the greater Joshua? Are you taking us in to the promised land? We want to go to the promised land. We want to reign with you in your kingdom. But it seems all around them like things are not going the way that they had anticipated. And Jesus tells them, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. He doesn't say, let not your hearts be troubled. You guys are super awesome. You're going to be able to do it. You will be fine. He's saying, believe in God. Believe also in me. And then he declares to them this promise of this promised land. I am going to prepare a place. In my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I wouldn't have told you that I go and prepare a place for you. And the disciples are confused, understandably. Where is that place? How are we going to get there? And they are focused on the specifics of the what, where, and the how. And Jesus answers simply, I am the way. Listen, we we say it so much that I understand why some of you would tune it out. I do. But the answer is Jesus. And I just want you to let that sink in for a second. That as God is telling you, I've prepared something for you. I've prepared a place for you. I, have, I will walk with you. And we, how often our responses is, yeah, what does it look like? Where exactly do I go? How are we going to get there? And Jesus just says, Me. Me. Abide in me. I mean, think about it. What more could you possibly want or need? Think through the Old Testament. What more could you possibly want or need besides bread, water, shelter, life, peace, joy, comfort, to be known, rescued, adopted, have a purpose? All of that is in Jesus. It is not in just obeying him. It's not in obeying the law. It's not in being moral or trying to be a good person. It's found in him. And this is a mystery that on the surface, when we hear it, we're like, oh, that's, that seems so simple. And yet when you really consider what this means, it is quite profound. It is so easy to get discouraged when we take our eyes off of him. We start getting focused on things like, what exactly is the promised land? What does that look like? What is this house? Like, we want to know, we want to know that. We want to know exactly what it looks like, and what exactly is heaven like, and what exactly would the new earth be like? And I think Jesus' response is, me. Looks like me. Like we, and we look at that, and sometimes we just say, well, we get discouraged because we don't really want that land. We want a different promised land. We want the land that we've promised to ourselves. A more immediate land. A temporary land. One where we're safe. One where we know everything that's going on and we don't feel out of sorts. One one where everybody looks at us and admires us and thinks that, that we're great for living the lives that we live. I mean, if you ever think... I like what we have now because what we have now is known and it's safe. Then just pause and remember that that is exactly what the Israelites were constantly saying as they were led out of Egypt. Like, it's better back there. Hey, at least back there we had lots of food to eat while we were dying. You just, it's amazing what we will settle for when our eyes come off of Jesus and onto the storms around us. It's amazing how we will buckle, how quickly we will chase other idols and other gods. Jesus is preparing a place for you. It's better. Jesus is saying, abide in me. And then the whole next, John 15 is a sermonette on that and what it looks like to abide in him. 
And all the time, whenever when, when people ask these questions, like, I just, I sound like a broken record. Like, well, what, what job should I take? Abide in Jesus. How do I love my neighbor? Abide in Jesus. How do I parent my kids? Abide in Jesus. And all the time I get this response and I get it in my own heart when I'm telling myself that. I get it in my own heart. Yeah, yeah, I know that, but what exactly does that look like? Abide in Jesus. Like it's amazing that the times in my life when I'm truly abiding in Jesus are also the times where I've had the most clarity of mind. Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that they're the times that things have gone the smoothest. I'm not saying they're the times that I've done everything perfectly. I'm saying they're the, they're the times where I've seen most clearly the path in front of me. But when I wander from him, I wander into all kinds of confusion. And church, we are at a place right now in this country specifically where we cannot afford to do that. We cannot afford to try to wander into the wrong promised land through the wrong means, fighting the wrong battles. And every time we detach ourselves from Jesus, that is exactly what we will do. Hear me when I say this. If you detach yourself from Jesus, you will wander towards the wrong promised land, fighting the wrong battles. It is not a question of if. You will do that. We are called to abide in Jesus. If we don't, we will, we will put our focus and our hope in the wrong things. We'll think that success of the kingdom of God and success of the advancement of the kingdom is measured by how many Supreme Court justices share our views. Or by how many classrooms have the Ten Commandments up in them. Or by how many people are attending our church services. We abide in Jesus. And the, the kingdom of God and this promised land that we have as we enter into it, the, the entering, of to that, entering of that looks the way that it looks as Jesus enters the world. And he does it this way in John 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So Jesus comes into a dark and hopeless world and brings light. That is the way. We attach ourselves to Jesus, who is the way, and his way. He is the light of the world. Whoever follows him will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. If we abide in him, then we walk in the light. We are light spreading in darkness. Because we know that as he has been sent, so we have been sent. That's what he says in John 20. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And so here's this thing that I want us to grasp is that as we walk into this promised land, as we are heading towards this new heaven and this new earth, the way that we go, just like with Joshua and Jericho, is countercultural. We don't play by the same rules the world plays by. We don't fight the same battles that the, that the world fights. We are sent as Jesus is sent, that we bring light into the midst of darkness. This is why we are referred to as the light of the world. So notice the parallel here. G Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And then in Matthew 5, he says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 
See, Jesus was light and the darkness could not overcome it. And now his bride, the church, is sent into the darkness to be a city on a hill, a light on a lampstand. And as long as we are abiding in Christ, we will be that light. But when we break off from him, we don't just lose a little bit of our light. The light is gone. And you cannot fight darkness with darkness. It doesn't work that way. And we also see that the light is more striking in dark places. Like if you've ever been in a really dark room and then walked outside into bright sunlight, what happens? You squint and you, you protect yourself from it because it's just, it's consuming. The darker things have been, the brighter the light shines. And if you like the darkness, if you are comfortable there, then light is obnoxious and you fight to keep the light out. That's why over the last several months I've heard from people who have gone out and they're sharing the gospel in places and they're trying to minister to people and they've become discouraged by the darkness that is around them. And I understand it, but at the same time, I kind of want to say, what did you expect? Like, people who are consumed in darkness find light really annoying. Right? Anybody ever had a small child come into, like, into your room while you're dead asleep and dark and flip on the light switch? Do you respond graciously? No, you do not. And neither do I. It's brutal. You don't want to see light. You don't want that. You want your darkness. Not only out there, but even in our own hearts. And darkness will fight to keep the light out. That's why our instinct is to cover our eyes and to cover up and to yell, turn off the light, turn off the light. The early church found this out in Acts 14 and many other places. But in Acts 14... But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barabbas, or Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium. And to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. If you ever want to know if something you're thinking is in line with what Scripture says, like here's a fun game to play. If you ever think like, oh, I, like you're fighting a fight and you think it's a big deal, try putting it at the heading in Acts, at one of the headings. Here's what I mean by that. Just imagine, imagine that in, in Acts you come to a heading and it says, the church at Lystra torn apart by the change in bulletin. Does that fit? No, it doesn't fit, does it? The church, the church in Iconium, as they were preaching the gospel, Paul and, and John are deterred, or Paul is deterred, Paul and, and, and Barnabas are deterred because someone called him a name. Because they stopped, people stopped talking to him. These men were dragged out of a city and stoned. And what's their response? What if the heading, what if the next heading was, and Paul and Barnabas went and gathered lawyers and they sued the synagogue. No. Paul and Barnabas gathered together an army and they went and they stoned all the religious leaders. They overthrew Caesar with their might and their their force. None of that would make sense. What did they do? They continued to spread light. They went on and they continued to preach the gospel. 
They went on and they continued to make disciples. They even backtracked to the places where they had been cast out and abused and continued to encourage one another in the gospel. Look, this whole idea that that we're just waltzing towards this promised land and so things are just going to keep getting better and better and and we're going to fight the way that the world fights, it, it is not... It is not what we see in Scripture. Look, God is the one who is fighting this, and we need to be strong and courageous, but we are strong and courageous not because we are smart, not because we are savvy, not because any of those things. We are strong and courageous because the Lord is with us. And when we invoke that, apart from Jesus, we find ourselves saying God is with us, fighting battles that are not even on his radar. But when we are attached to Jesus, and we find ourselves being emboldened, in Matthew 6, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says, he asks them, who do, you, who do people say that I am? What are people saying about me? And we see Peter's famous confession where he says, because he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter replies, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Pop quiz, who will build his church? Anybody? Who will build his church? Jesus. Remember the whole answer thing? It's always Jesus. I'm not trying to trick you here. It's Jesus. He doesn't say, Peter, on you, I will, I will on you, we're going to build the church. You're going to build the church. Go and build my church. He says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And he is. He is building his church. And we get distraught and confused because we think he should be fighting different battles. But he's been very clear of what he's after. And he's after the hearts of his children. And it's happening. There are more Christians today than there have ever been. The church planting movements that the world is seeing now today are the most insane acts of revival that we have ever seen. Millions of people coming to Christ in the darkest of places. Why? Because light shines there. It's blinding there. It stands out there. He's building his church and we are sitting around wringing our hands about the things we see in our country. Like saying, isn't it sad that they've taken prayer out of the schools? Just so you know, that's a pet peeve of mine. Don't ever say that to me unless you want lots of sarcasm coming back. And then I will repent and I'll ask for your forgiveness, but the damage will have already been done. Trust me. It drives me crazy when I hear that they've taken prayer out of schools. You know, I'm sorry to do this to you, but show of hands, how many of you work in the school system? Show of hands. Raise them high. Prayer hasn't gone anywhere. I know these men and women, many of them, and they are praying fervently for their students. Praying for these families. Praying that God would give them opportunities to love people and to love our communities. And they are constantly in their presence. Like it's daily happening, begging God for revival. Are we praying with them for it? Or are we just looking to the government to reinstitute it and say that it's okay? We don't need their permission. We can invoke God. We can invoke the power of the Holy Spirit. But darkness wants to remain dark and it will fight against the light and we should not be surprised at this. 
The kingdom is a mustard seed. It is growing. Jesus says it will, it will grow and it's going to continue to grow until the new heavens and the new earth. And there is fighting to be done. But it is not against flesh and blood. People are not our enemies. The enemy is our enemy. And you are sent into a world that will think you're foolish by the battle you fight and how you fight it. And my encouragement is embrace that. Embrace it. Respond to evil with kindness and with love. The early church was marked by love, not by their fighting, and it enraged the powers of this world. And yet, the more the darkness tried to suppress the light, the more the light shone. And they rejoiced and they were emboldened. Why? Because he was with them. What was the promise to Joshua? I am with you. What was the promise to Noah? I am with you. What was the promise to Abraham? I am with you. What was the promise to Moses? I am with you. What was the promise to the disciples? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That is where our hope lies. Not in elections, not in morals. It's in Jesus. That is where our courage comes from. He who is in you is greater than he who is in this world. 1 John 4.4 4. If God is for you, who can be against you? Romans 8. Look, your courage doesn't come from your own strength. It comes from God. And so right now, if, you, if you're struggling with that, then my encouragement is abide in Jesus. If you are looking and you're saying, how are we going to get from here to there? Jesus, how in the world are you going to make this a new heaven and a new earth? How are you going to stem the tide of this darkness? Realize the one you are asking that question to. If the battle is light shining in the midst of darkness and Jesus is light, then there's nothing the world can do. Because the darker it gets around you, the brighter your light shines. I'm like, so what if instead, this is the last thing I want to encourage you with, what if instead as we, as we approach this week, instead of being discouraged by the darkness that is around us, instead of being discouraged by the trials that come into our path, what if we saw them as little spaces of darkness where the light of Jesus shines in a blinding way? Essentially, that's what's happening in the early church. That's why they count it joy when they face trials of various kinds. It's why they are abused and rejoice that they were counted worthy to suffer for his namesake. It's not because they liked being injured. It's because every time they had something like that, they saw it as a platform that they could shine the light of Jesus that much brighter. That nobody could look at it and explain it away in any other way. What if we did that? We are called on this mission. It is a singular focus of abiding in Jesus and to be about the things that he is about. And he says, he commissions us, go and make disciples who make disciples. By the way, this is why we try to simplify things. We want to focus on the main things. 40 years ago, over 40 years ago, this church was started around the singular focus of proclaiming the gospel to a lost and hurting world. 
Some of you that were around, we have a few people who were around then. I don't know how you worded it, but I know from the stories that I've heard that that's the goal. And over time, we get consumed with other things and other battles and other promised lands and other things that we want to pursue. And Jesus is making it really clear. Just abide in me. So this is what we're called to do. My hope and my prayer this morning, I will tell you, just be really transparent with you here. Normally I'm probably about 75 to 80% of what I say is in my notes. This morning we're about 30%. So it feels a little disjointed. It's because this is what I am hearing from the Holy Spirit to just proclaim over and over and over again. Abide in him. He is with you. Abide in him. He is with you. And so if you're sitting here and you're wondering, like, if that's hitting you in a certain way, then you just need to know that that is God doing that in you and for you. But I think it's an encouragement to us as a whole church. Abide in him. He is with you. His victory is certain. We are to push back the darkness of a lost world with the light of the gospel. Be strong and courageous, for he is with you always till the end of the age. Let's pray. Father God, I I don't know what to do other than to submit all of this to you and to trust you. Because God, I know that Transformation does not happen because of human words. I know that that a supernatural emboldening does not happen with a strong, articulate, intellectual argument. So God, I am just placing my trust in you and the power of the Holy Spirit. And I pray that we would all do that. I pray we would receive from you what you've called us to receive here this morning that we would rejoice that you are our God and our King and that you are with us. God, help us to be bold. Help us to be singularly focused on spreading light in the midst of a dark world. And it is the light of Jesus, not a generic light not a generic goodness, but we are spreading Jesus. Because Jesus, you are the light of the world and the darkness cannot overcome it. And you have sent us to be the light of the world that they may see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. Let it be so.